Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature the fall of the Australian Vaccination Network, coma or conscious, and the DSM drives doctors crazy. But first up, here's the news with Victoria Bond. Willful modulation of brain activity in disorders of consciousness. Researchers at major centres in Cambridge in the UK and Liege in Belgium conducted a study looking at 54 patients found to be in a vegetative state. What the researchers asked these patients to do was to imagine themselves playing tennis or walking down a street that they were um, very familiar with and they um, they looked at fMRI studies of their brain to see if there was any activity. Now the people who did have activity were then asked yes or no questions, and if the answer to the question was yes, such as, um, do you have a brother? They were asked to imagine themselves walking down the street, which would make their entire brain light up. And they actually found that out of the 54 patients, three of them were able to respond yes or no to these questions. So this is really confronting to people who commonly consider um, patients in a coma to be completely unconscious, and it would suggest that maybe our idea of consciousness in people in a vegetative state might have to be reclassified. And uh, for these three patients that were shown to be responsive on fMRI, it would also mean that they could possibly have some breakthrough care and, and could be re-socialized to a certain extent. So that's very exciting research coming out of Europe at the moment. Scientists at the University College of London in the UK have found that living a boring life can kill you. They interviewed 7,500 civil servants between the age of 35 and 55, between the years of 1985 and 1988, and they asked them how bored they were. They found that 10% of respondents reported having been bored within the previous month, and women were twice as likely to report boredom as men. Of those who said that they had a high level of boredom, 37% were more likely to be found dead at the end of this period than those who were reported to be very interested in their job. The researchers are postulating that people are, who are bored are more prone to being unhappy and feeling unmotivated and um, embracing unhealthy lifestyles like lack of exercise, smoking, drinking, doing drugs. So what they're, uh, what they're suggesting is um, they should keep up a clean lifestyle because if they continue in such a way, then they would be at risk for things like a coronary infarction, stroke, heart disease. And um, they suggest that people who feel bored at their work should try to find interest outside of work and avoid turning to drinking and smoking as a release. Heavy metal music and other sounds are aimed at beetles as a pesticide. Researchers at the University of Northern Arizona played rock music and recordings of Rush Limbaugh played backwards to see if beetles would, be, would stop infesting nearby forests. What they found is, um, although the beetles did find Rush Limbaugh very 
irritating, they could actually just eventually ignore his voice and kept going on with the infestation. So what they tried instead is um, they played recording of beetle-produced sounds. They, uh, they focused on an aggressive call produced by males of the tree killer species called Dendroctotomus species. Um, they, made, they, they altered the call, though, so it wasn't uh, a typical aggressive call. They made it longer and louder than usual, and this really changed the beetles' behaviors. The most striking change in beetle behavior was during the mating. If they played this call just as a male and a female were about to begin mating, the male would actually turn around and rip the female apart. So <laughs> this could be a great alternative, maybe not for the beetle, but rather than use chemical pesticides play beetle sounds. And uh, they're hoping for extra money to, to try ultrasound and, and different versions that might be less irritating to humans as well. And finally, stuttering has been linked to a genetic mutation. Stuttering has often been blamed on an emotional problem or blamed on the parents for raising their children or, or stress or things like that, which has made people feel quite guilty. But what researchers have recently discovered is um, stuttering is, is inherited, which would suggest a genetic link. And they looked at uh, a large family of inbred Pakistani, which um, several of them stutter. <laughs> and they found three areas on chromosome 12 that are frequently mutated. When they opened up their study in different parts of the UK, the US, and Pakistan, they identified this same mutation in several stutterers. And they did not find this mutation in, in anyone who did not stutter, except for a single Pakistani volunteer. So. The, this mutation would account for 9% of all stuttering cases, but the researchers actually suggest that between 50 and 70% of stuttering cases have a genetic component. The gene implicated, interestingly enough, has to do with the recycling bin process in the cells, so it would be a metabolic problem which could be targeted by an enzyme. So there's some future therapy for stutterers out there like me. Thank you, Victoria. Next up, I spoke earlier with Dr. Rachel Dunlop, who's a scientist and a member of the Australian Skeptics, about her battle with the Australian Vaccination Network. A number of months now, probably about 12 months. Uh, a lot of people, in fact, have been involved. Um, I'm a member of the Australian Skeptics, and we've had quite a large campaign trying to just make the public aware of some of the, the myths information spread by the Australian Vaccination Network. But there's also been a number of other groups involved, one particularly well-known one uh, who's been very active called Stop the AVN, which was um, set up as a Facebook group and has now become um, very, very active in uh, just sort of tackling their, their, their use of um, false information, basically. Right. So what have they been trying to tell the public? Some of the things that they say is they continue to claim that there's a link between vaccines and autism. Now, this has never been um, demonstrated. In fact, there have been many, many studies, in fact, showing the opposite. Uh, there was a large-scale study done in the year 2002 using uh, around 600,000 children looking at unvaccinated versus vaccinated, and there was no difference in the amounts or the occurrence of autism in these children. 
Uh, second of all, they uh, sort of base this argument on the um, very well-known paper by Wakefield, which was originally published in the Lancet Medical Journal in the year 1998. Now, as a result of a, uh, the longest investigation in the history of the General Medical Council of the UK, uh, last week uh, they passed down their findings about the conduct of Andrew Wakefield and they deemed him to be uh, dishonest, callous and unethical. And as a result of this, on the 2nd of February 2010, The Lancet completely retracted this paper from the medical records. So basically it's been scratched. And so there's no evidence anymore for the AVN to be saying that vaccines cause autism. The original paper has been found to be uh, completely brought into disrepute. And then, of course, as I said, there's lots of other studies showing exactly the opposite of what they're saying. Um, and, of course, they also say that vaccines contain mercury now in the year. 2000 or 2001, all childhood vaccines in the United States had the thimerosal com component, which is the mercury-containing component, taken out of the vaccines. So there's only a few vaccines, in it, which are for adults, that have this um, mercury-containing component. So that's also a half-truth. Well, it's not. It's, a, it's misinformation that's false along with other things that vaccines cause SIDS, that they cause shaken baby syndrome and a whole lot of stuff for which there's just absolutely no evidence in science at all. So they're just basically scaring people away from getting vaccinated or vaccinating their children. Exactly. And, and what they're doing is scaremongering. And of course, the result of this is that parents do get terrified that there's going to be a, a reaction from the vaccine uh, and they don't get their children vaccinated and it's very hard to unscare people when you start telling them your child is going to get is going to die from SIDS or get autism um, and this has resulted in uh, some outbreaks of preventable diseases in Australia and it's probably partly because of this campaigning by the Australian Vaccination Network for example in 2008-2009 we had a whooping cough epidemic in the northern rivers and the bottom part of Queensland in Australia. And during this whooping cough epidemic, three babies passed away. Now, this is the result of people not vaccinating and, and listening to the information that these, these people are giving. And the problem is it's just not right. It's false. It's incorrect. It's appalling because vaccination saves lives. And the more unvaccinated children, more unvaccinated people there are generally, the easier it is for viruses and bacteria to mutate and evolve into new forms. That's exactly right. That sort of involves a concept known as herd immunity, which basically means that um, if a large percentage of the population are vaccinated, around 90% is enough to maintain what's called herd immunity. It means when a virus or bacteria is um, is able to get into the community, it's not going to spread very far because a lot of people have the vaccine and so they're not likely to get ill enough to pass it on. Now, this means that it doesn't get an opportunity to mutate, as you say, uh, and so this uh, keeps the, the virus or the bacteria in check, if you like. So it's a very, very important thing to, to realise that you're not just protecting yourself by getting a vaccine, you're also protecting other people. And in particular, you're protecting people that either can't get vaccinated for medical reasons, they may have an allergy, for example, to egg protein, and some vaccines are made in eggs, and so if you have an allergy to that, you can't have it. People that are immunocompromised, for example, people who have cancers and might be receiving chemotherapy, their, their immune system is already damaged, and so they are not advised to get vaccinated. And then, of course, very young children who may not have had their full course of their vaccination yet, 
And this is a good example in the case of whooping cough, because you get three shots of whooping cough vaccine. It's called pertussis uh, or DTAP vaccine. And if those children haven't fully got their immunity strong, they can also contract the, the bacteria and they can die. And the safety of the vaccines has been tested in clinical trials. Absolutely. Look, nobody's saying that vaccines are 100% safe or 100% effective. There are some very uh, rare side effects that you will get from vaccines. And I mentioned before, if you have an allergy to an egg to egg protein, you can't get vaccines made in eggs. But these, the, we know about these reactions. We know there are some adverse reactions. We have a system set up to report these reactions. So whilst these vaccines were tested thoroughly before they were even released to the public, we continue to test them by monitoring whether anyone has an adverse event or a, a side effect or a reaction. And this is kept in a database by the government so we can keep in check as to how these vaccines are performing. And of course, as I said, there are reactions, but they're small and they're rare. And we know that the, the risks of contracting a disease and getting ill are... The, the risk from a vaccine, getting an injury from a vaccine, um, it's, it's so small that the benefits of getting it are so much greater. They far outweigh the risk of having a, an adverse event. So you've told me what's happened with Professor Wakefield's paper and The Lancet, how it's been withdrawn and it's been thoroughly discredited and he's been cited on unethical behaviour. What's well, happened to the Australian Vaccination Network? What's happened to the Australian Vaccination Network? Uh, well, in fact, coincidentally, on the same day that the Wakefield paper was retracted from the Lancet Journal, uh, they announced that they would be closing their doors at the end of February. Uh, and in a, a newsletter sent to their members, their president, Meryl Dory, said that their financial situation was such that they could no longer afford to continue. Uh, so... Uh, she was asking for donations from members and she was saying that if she didn't receive a large injection of funds from um, a series of benefactors, then they would have to, they'd be forced to close their doors. Um, a couple of days later, she sent another e-newsletter saying that she wanted to clarify that they would only close if they got the money. And then a couple of days later, she sent another one with a big masthead saying AVN closing down sale which detailed all of their products and their educational material and DVDs at 20% off until the end of the month. So it seems to me that they are going to close down unless they get this large amount of money that she's, that she's looking for. But I have to say it's been a pretty tough year for the Australian Vaccination Network. Um, currently there are two complaints pending with the Healthcare Complaints Commission uh, and these are focused on uh, the fact that they do uh, spread this misinformation, as I just outlined some of the details to you. This was prepared by a gentleman by the name of Ken McLeod, and he went through a lot of their material and very carefully found areas where they would make claims such as vaccines cause autism. He would dispute that very thoroughly and in a lot of detail. And so this has gone to the Healthcare Complaints Commission, and they are currently uh, presiding over that complaint. Uh, there's also a complaint that's currently lodged with the Office of Link Gaming and Racing, which is the charity watchdog. They look after charities, and the ABN is classified as a charity. Uh, and they announced today they're going to be doing an audit on the ABN's books in the next couple of days. Uh, and this is stemming from the fact that for a period of two years, um, 
the Australian Vaccination Network operated apparently without a charity licence, whilst still acting as a charity and still collecting donations. So that will be audited in the next couple of days, and um, the, the penalties for that are quite severe. So we wait and see what happens. But, um, yeah, no, they haven't had a good year, and it seems that now they're running out of money. So I'm not quite sure what the future is going to be for the Australian Vaccination Network. As a member of the Australian Skeptics, what do you think is the best way to calm people's fears, their irrational fears over the vaccines, so that they trust them and they don't listen to these scaremongers? Yeah, I, I should just mention I am a PhD doctor, not a clinical doctor. Right. <laughs> just to clarify, look, I think I think the best way is to, to just do what I've just told you. You know, when, when they come out and say that vaccines cause autism, we can say, well, no, here is the evidence that they don't. And in fact, earlier uh, in 2009, the Australian Skeptics ran a national news um, print campaign in the Australian newsletter. And this was supported by Dick Smith. Uh, the famous entrepreneur and, you know, everyone in Australia knows Dick. He's, he's our man who flew around the world in a helicopter and, you know, he used to own the Dick Smith um, electronics and all that stuff. He's, he's a very well-known um, entrepreneur in Australia. Uh, and he sponsored a campaign that went into the Australian newspaper just alerting parents to the fact that you can't trust the information you get from the Australian Vaccination Network. And so pleading with parents to seek advice from, from doctors and from reputable sources such as the Medicare website or the government websites that, that, that address vaccination from a factual and science-based, uh, you know, angle, rather than this scaremongering and um, spreading of false stuff by the Australian Vaccination Network. So I think that the best thing that we can do and what we have been doing for the past 12 months is to just get it out there so that the thing that is also quite deceitful about the way that the AVN operates is that they put on a public face of their, their pro-choice, is what they say. We are pro-choice. We just want parents to educate themselves, to know both sides of the story, and then they can make a decision as to whether they vaccinate their children. And, of course, it is ultimately the choice of a parent. Absolutely, that's up to you if you want to vaccinate or not. But then behind closed doors, they're clearly anti-vaccination. Um, yes. And there have been interviews done with, with um, Meryl Dory, who's the president, over the last few months, where interviewers have openly said to her, OK, you say you're pro-choice. Tell me then, what is a good vaccine? And she can't ever answer that question. Now, how does that... How can that be um, that she's pro-choice if, if she's saying all vaccines are bad, all, you know, vaccines cause autism, vaccines contain mercury, mercury causes autism? So they're not even telling the truth to the public. They're, they're trying to portray them as pro-choice, but they're very, very anti-vax. And so that's what we think is um, the best way for, for us to sort of try to calm parents a little bit by saying, but they're not giving you the truth. Here are the facts. Here's the science. Please seek advice from your doctor. Wonderful. So what do you think the anti-vaxxers get out of it? Are they genuinely afraid of the vaccines themselves or is it some sort of grandstanding? Look, in some cases, Ian, it is very stems from tragedies that have occurred to them. And, and I feel terrible for parents who have um, had children that, that they think have had a vaccine injury. Um, and I think a lot, and in, in the case of Meryl Dory, she has a child or, um, who did, she thinks, or claims got injured by a vaccine. Uh, so the problem with that, too, is it's similar to what's happening with Jenny McCarthy, who's one of the figureheads of the anti-vaxxers in the United States. 
she claims that her son contracted autism from a vaccine. But the, the sort of the time that autism becomes sort of noticeable in children is also corresponds with the time that they start to receive a lot of their vaccination schedule. And so, of course, a parent, if they see a change in their child, you know, a week or, or hours after they've had a vaccine and then they receive a diagnosis of autism, of course they're going to naturally think it had something to do with the vaccine. But it's purely and simply just that that's around the time that autism, for example, can be recognised and, and start to appear in children. So a lot of these parents have had something like that happen and when they're told by people like the Australian Vaccination Network what was definitely the vaccine, then of course they're going to believe that and they're scared and that's where it stemmed from. Um, and I guess the, they just keep believing that and it's a little bit like confirmation bias, you know, you, you just keep seeking more information that affirms your belief. And so if you look on Google, if you, if you look for the information that says vaccines cause autism, you'll find plenty of it. It's not based in science. It's not statistically sound. It's not um, true, but you will find it. And so the more you read on the internet about this stuff, the more you think, yes, it definitely was that. And that's the problem. So that's what we're trying to sort of counteract. Terrific. Well, Dr. Rachel Dunlop, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. You can hear more of Dr. Rachel Dunlop as Dr. Rachie on the Skeptic Zone podcast, which is at http www.skepticzone.tv. And you can look for her on Twitter as Dr. Rachie. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2scr.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. And next, Victoria tells us about the DSM and the definitions. So some pretty breaking news as of the time of this recording is that the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual for All Psychiatric Disorders used in the United States, the new one, the DSM-5, has just been released online for anyone to to read and to criticize. Now, the last DSM, DSM DSM-4, was written in 1994, um, and this new version is quite controversial. According to um, my news source, two of the leaders from the task force that wrote the current manual have been strongly criticized by the way they've been doing their job. There have been back and forth commentaries between them and the leader of and the the people who wrote the DSM-4, and they've basically degenerated into personal attacks. Now, this is really nothing new. (laughs) Every time something new like this comes out, especially in the field of psychiatry, where there's um, still at the moment very little science between a lot of the behind a lot of the diagnoses, um, there's a lot of um, contestations as to what can be considered a disease, especially uh, the DSM has always been a little bit controversial when you think back in the 1960s, they they rated homosexuality as a disease. So <laughs> what what they've done this time is um, they've released it for, for anyone to, to use and to apply. And we have until um, April of 2013 before they release the final draft. So there's going to be a lot of testing out of this new DSM, which is good news for us. People kept adding new diseases. They never actually took away diagnoses. So what this DSM is trying to do is reverse that trend, so revising a lot of diseases. And some of the things that they're revising are, um, are very famous. So like Asperger's syndrome is no longer Asperger's syndrome. It's now just considered the mild end of the autism spectrum disorder. They're also getting rid of substance abuse and substance dependence, and instead they're replacing it with um, addiction disorders for a specific 
substance. So you've got um, cannabis use disorder or alcohol use disorder, maybe even gambling use disorder. I haven't actually looked into it in that much detail. There's also a new disorder called temper dysregulation with dysphoria or TDT, which is a new category of mood disorder for some children who are um, suffering from more severe bipolar disorder. And Finally, a new category of risk syndromes would diagnose troubled teens with symptoms such as disordered thinking, and that's called the psychosis risk syndrome. Now that's, I think, particularly controversial because only 10 to 20% of people who meet these diagnostic criteria will actually go on to develop schizophrenia, which is a disease which at this moment is not very well controlled by medication. It's, it doesn't have a cure and it's extremely stigmatizing. So you'd be labeling these teens with a risk of becoming schizophrenic and eight out of 10 of these teens will never go on to develop any sort of disease. It's a good trend in a lot of ways because you have uh, this the last manual was written in 1994, and since then there's been a ton of new research that's been discrediting so-called diseases. And there's also been a ton of research which has unearthed um, other diseases which so far have no category. So they, they get misdiagnosed or they get mm -hmm. slotted around and perhaps not treated as effectively as they could be. And also sometimes it is a bit scary trying to pigeonhole people. Um, as you were saying, it was disordered thinking, like giving somebody that title might um, encourage them to misbehave. It's similar to what they did with the attention deficit disorder, that ADD. A lot of children now, um, my mum's a child psychologist and she's saying lots of um, people come to her and say, well, you know, your child has, a, you know, my child has ADD, what are you going to do about it? And obviously there's going to be children that do misbehave, they go through different phases. And so who's to say what's, you know, disordered thinking, who has ADD, I think, yeah, pigeonholing people is definitely dangerous and having it in a booklet um, is is scary, as you were saying with the homosexuals as well. Like, yeah, um, because it's defined it, as a disease. Is it defined as a disease, exactly. And, yeah. and people treat it as a Bible in a way. Mm. It's, it's, if it continues to be uncontested, then it won't get better. So. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice, communicating science on radio. Then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond, Catherine B. Hag. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.